Welcome to Sustainable Minds, exploring the interplay of corporate brand, core beliefs, and ESG. Brought to you by Baker. In every episode, we'll investigate how purpose, vision, and values can guide your company's sustainability actions, behaviors, and mindsets. And we'll discuss their impact with the help of ESG-focused guests from around the globe. I'm your host, Rocket. And I'm your host, Gary. Let's get started. Today, we are speaking with Allison Taylor. Allison is the Executive Director of Ethical Systems, which is a part of NYU Stern School of Business, a collaboration between leading academics working on behavior science, systems thinking, and organizational psychology. She's an adjunct professor at NYU Stern School of Business, where she teaches professional responsibility, sustainability, and leadership. She's an advisor at BSR, Business for Social Responsibility. Allison has advised hundreds of multinational companies on strategy, sustainability, political and social risk, culture and behavior, human rights, ethics and compliance, stakeholder engagement, ESG, and anti-corruption. And if that's not enough, she regularly speaks and writes on all aspects of business and responsibility and ethics. Allison, welcome to Sustainable Minds. Thank Thank you so much for having me, Gary. Are you still advising with the Business for Social Responsibility? Yeah, that's right. I was a managing director at BSR before I joined NYU, and so I'm still an advisor there. I have a few other advisory roles, and I'm trying to write a book, but uh, lots of different hats. (laughs) Yeah, I I want to talk about that. But I have a note here also that uh, you've advised hundreds of multinational companies on not just one or two things, but strategy, sustainability, political and social risk, culture and behavior, human rights, ethics and compliance, stakeholder engagement, ESG, and anti-corruption. That's fantastic. That's right. That's well, right. Well, I've had a lot, lot of different jobs, I guess. Yeah. I'm incredibly old and I've had a lot of different jobs. <laughs> How did you get into this field? Where do I mean, when you know when you began, was this your your vision? Was this your the road or on or? No, I'm really a, a historian and political scientist, and so I got involved in first of all in country risk and in how you can operate successfully in emerging markets. So I worked in the Middle East and Africa, and I worked in India. And so that was my sort of interest originally back in the day. And then I uh, I became an investigator and I spent 12 years working in corporate investigation. So that was really investigating fraud, investigating corruption, again, like working in the Middle East and Africa and then all, all over the Americas. So Latin America and North America. And so that was a lot more about kind of ethics and compliance and lawyers and regulatory risk and risk, basically political yeah. risk, social yeah. risk, that kind of thing. And so then I moved into sustainability in 2015. And one of the things I found super fascinating was how little connection there is between the world of risk and ethics and corruption versus sustainability and ESG and corporate responsibility. Like the two worlds uh, didn't, at least five years ago, talk to each other very much. They use different terms, concepts, ideas. And I thought that was pretty interesting because as far as I'm 
concerned, they all have to do with ethical business. And so I think there are a lot of interesting questions we can ask about why that is. And I I got interested in those questions and I'm still interested in them. And then along the way, also, I picked up uh, some qualifications in organizational psychology. So then I I also approach a lot of these questions from the perspective of culture and leadership and that kind of thing. Yeah, very, very important issues. So I want to ask you a little about ethical systems. When was it established and why was it established? What problem was it trying to solve? Yeah, so it was it was founded by a he's quite a famous social psychologist. He's a famous professor. He's called Jonathan Haidt. His most famous book is called The Righteous Mind, uh, but he also wrote a book called The Coddling of the American Mind. And he works on moral and political psychology. Yeah. Um, and he joined Stern, the NYU Stern School of Business, I think in 2011. And he set up ethical systems because what he noticed was that a lot of problems in business ethics, you know, where how companies try to tackle them is that they hire some consultants and they do some benchmarks and everybody copies everyone else. And there's this idea that there's this solution out there. And he noticed that none of those ideas had anything to do with the very good academic research on these topics. So what he was really trying to do was bring the best ideas from academia into the business world. So if that works, then academics spend less time writing papers (laughs) that nine people read and companies can do better jobs and not just copy each other and spend far too much money on consultants. So the idea, So one of the ways I think about my job or I think about what I try and do in the world is that I'm a translator between a lot of different domains. So Mm -hmm. I try to make ESG understandable to people in compliance. I try and make sustainability people understand topics like corruption. And then I try to help business people use really good ideas from research. And I try to make academics make their ideas practical so that they're not so obscure that no one can pay any attention. And all of that seems worthwhile to me. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And how do you suggest to people that you can build cultures that are ethical? Well, I mean, we, we would say that every culture is unique. And then the second thing we'd say is, I think, uh, a lot of the ways that we think about culture in organizations, especially for Americans, because the very, very individualistic culture. So we tend to focus, right, on good people and bad people. If you have good leaders, you'll have a good company. And what we really need to do is to find and remove the bad people and the bad apples. We think that only gets you so far because the reality is we're far more influenced by our surroundings than any of us like to admit to Mm. ourselves. So we would say that rather than saying just do the right thing and, and rather than laying out a bunch of rules, you also need to pay attention to how human beings behave in groups. So a few really obvious examples. It's really, really difficult to speak up if somebody, you know, has a lot of power over you. And it's difficult even if they don't have a lot of power over you. So companies spend a lot of time saying, why don't employees, why aren't employees braver? And why don't they speak up more without thinking about why it's so difficult in the first place? Or we put in place a lot of rules about what people can and can't do. And we don't think about things how 
things like the incentives and the pay structure and bonuses and how things like that might encourage unethical behaviors. So there's a lot of lecturing and there's a lot of empty hope out there. And what we're trying to do is say, no, you can use ideas that are very well researched and you can use those to design organizations with more ethical cultures. You know, I, I was thinking about that. I'm just curious, when you're advising a CEO or the C-suite and you see that there's a blind spot or you sort of sense their hesitation or slight resistance to what you're trying, to the path you're, you're sort of recommending, what do you do or do you just say, so be it? I mean, they're, they're asking you to bring certain things to the party, right, to the table. I'm just curious if you have anything that helps open them up? I mean, I think that this is a good question because in sustainability, as, as you will all know very well, there's a big focus on the business case, right? We should yeah. do this because yeah. it will be better for the bottom line over the yep. long run. We should prioritize these issues because they'll make more money and they'll reduce reputational risk and that kind of thing. Now, here's the thing. After I spent all this time working in ethics and compliance, I then went and worked in sustainability and I built sustainability strategies and reports in, in much the same way you did. And in that job, people used, would ask me over and over and over again what the business case was for doing this. Can you give me some slides? The CEO is a bit skeptical about whether there's a point. Lay out the business case. Mm -hmm. Provide me some evidence. I have never seen this persuade a skeptic in real life. <laughs> I've never seen it work. I agree. I think, it, I think it might work if you have the CFO or someone with a lot of financial credibility making the yeah. argument. But what doesn't seem to work is the sustainability person trying to make the financial no. case to someone that's got more expertise than no. them. So I think it's a sort of myth I think what does move the needle with leaders is actually what moves the needle above everything else is getting yelled at by their teenage children uh, at the <laughs> dinner table. But I think there's something about your legacy and leadership and making a difference and feeling that you're doing something worthwhile in the world and having a focus and then, you know, motivating, of course, and engaging your employees and having a, a purpose that the organization can get behind. I've found all those arguments to be a lot more effective than if you do this, here's how you will make more money. Yeah, mm -hmm. I totally agree. One of my few opening questions with people that I really don't know, if they view this as a risk mitigation situation, or is it a value creation opportunity for them? And once they stop, start talking about what you were just mentioning, just you know, afraid and trying to mitigate the risk, rather than the opportunities that they have in front of them and what, in our humble opinion, the world needs them to be doing out there. Yeah, that's a kind of interesting dynamic. Absolutely. Yeah, it sure is. I know you what you say that, uh, you know, it put, you teach part-time at NYU Stern. What advice do you give for, you know, teaching professional responsibility and leadership? 
I find this class very funny. I think most business schools have this kind of class and it's called professional responsibility or ethics. And the students always walk in thinking it's going to be the class where I tell them how to stay out of jail. And so I always start <laughs> off with that and I say, this is not the class where I'm going to tell you how to stay out of jail. So what I really try and do is say, you know, we're going to explore the big topics. We're going to talk about shareholder value. We're going to talk about stakeholders. We're going to talk about social psychology. We're going to talk about philosophy and ethics. We're going to talk about, obviously, ESG, employee activism, political risk. And I just say, let's get it on the table. If you think this stuff is nonsense, let's have it out. I value debate. I value discussion. Challenge me. Tell me I'm wrong. And then we'll get into some really, really interesting conversations. I mean, one of the favorite uh, exercises I give a class is, is a, an article about Amazon. And then I, we normally have a really big debate and it tends to divide the classroom quite sharply. The question <laughs> you work at Amazon is a very good question uh, to use in an MBA class. <laughs> yeah. yeah. In 2018, uh, you wrote about culture, behavior, and corporate integrity 2.0. So I'm curious here, four years later, where is corporate integrity 2.0? Where does that stand today? Well, I mean, I would say, I mean, the arguments I think I made Back in 2018, I think I've kind of doubled down on them. I see uh, more and more what's going on. So the argument I would tend to make, right, is what we name ethical business is really it's a lot of PR and it's a lot of effort to avoid litigation and, and reputational risk. But what is happening, and it's really accelerated since 2018, is that those defense mechanisms, those efforts to put a shield around the corporation, yeah. to control the narrative, to tell a really nice story, those are becoming less and less effective. So, of course, the rise of social media means now we all look at Glassdoor if we're going to figure out where to work. We don't look at what the company's <laughs> saying. But, you know, leaking is the new whistleblowing, this kind of rise of employees saying, I know this is what the company says it stands for. Here's what it's really like to work here. And we're going to embarrass the hell out of you. This has happened with Uber in the last few weeks. Obviously, it happened in, with Facebook. So I think the weaponization of information by employees is a really kind of key piece of evidence that, that treating all this as a defense mechanism, treating it as telling a good story, uh, doesn't really work anymore. You can also think about non-disclosure agreements for sexual harassment are going away. So now employees can speak up about that. And, and so what's really happening is it's becoming much harder for a corporation to control the narrative. The other thing that's, of course, happened more and more since 2018, especially in America, is companies being drawn into really controversial social and political problems. So started with immigration, of course, gun control, now women's reproductive rights, voting rights. Now ESG. And so there's also this idea you see kicking around that, you know, all companies need to do is balance the interests of all their stakeholders. Well, good luck with that. <laughs> um, I think that's got really, really hard. And I think a lot of the sort of conventional wisdom out there is, is, is banal in that way. Like you can't please all of the people yeah. all of the time, as Bob Dylan said. You've got to make some tough decisions about who you're going to prioritize what you're going to focus on. And I think some companies get this. A lot of them are still trying to be all things to all people, you know, stand up when it seems convenient and 
when people are calling for it and then do something different with their political spending. And I think all of that's just becoming much harder to get away with. So we are in this really interesting new era. And I think it's quite threatening and frightening for a lot of corporate leaders. And I don't blame them. There was an amazing quote from the former CEO of Aetna in the Wall Street Journal a few weeks ago, who said, running a business is now table stakes. And I thought that was pretty scary. If running a business, which is, let's face it, really, really hard, is now table stakes comparing to compared to figuring out what you're going to do about all these social problems, then we we seem to be in a, a tough spot. Yeah, I like that you're doubling down. On Integrity 2.0, it needs to be doubled down on. (laughs) Well, it seems like I know that you have, what kind of guidance do you you tell them when, you know, if somebody comes back at you lightly and says, you know, oh yeah, I'm, I'm a believer in shareholder and stakeholder capitalism, you know, and you are advocating to them, you know, good luck with that. What do you tell them to do to try to sort through it all and still end up in a holistic place or approach and at the same time, you know, have a considered approach. So I do think it's really important to think about your values and have not too many, but really stick to them. And I think it's really important to focus and to have a few priorities. What you tend to see, and you, I guess you help companies with these reports, but you tend to see these very glossy reports where everybody's on track with all their goals and there'll be some smiling children and some smiling women in hard hats and three pillars and a really nice kind of glossy view of what this company is doing. And and I don't think people pay a lot of attention to these things and I don't think they believe them. So I would say focus on a couple of things that are really important both to your business and to your stakeholders and do a really good job on those. Don't spend your entire budget on communications. Try and actually make a difference. I think a lot of the ESG reporting industry weighs against that because you're supposed to be disclosing and implying you're doing ambitious things on 30 or 40 issues. There is no company I've spent more than five minutes in that is really making a difference on 30 or 40 issues. So I think the key is focus. And then I think for everything else, I think you've just got to push back. You've got to not be governed by Twitter. You've got to resist having a social media team that's like, oh, here's who's yelling at us this week. Let's make a statement on that. And I think you've just got to be much clearer about your values and stick to what you're doing. Now, that won't solve all problems because there are a load of things that are relevant to every business and that are controversial because they're relevant to employees and they're about social identity. So issues around race and gender and women's rights and sexuality, I think those need to be dealt with in a different way because no company can say that they're they're irrelevant and they're not going to get involved, but they have become, especially in the American context, very, very fraught. Great advice. I like that. I read yesterday, or was it today, Ethical Systems had an article, the concept of net zero as a deceptive, simple, and dangerous trap. And I thought that was kind of interesting. And it talks about there's no magic bullets. We need to stop moving the problem around. For our listeners, can you elaborate on that a little bit? You commented on that, I think, this morning. 
So I think, you know, the I mean, for your listeners to understand, the idea is you have net zero, which is that you trade off your carbon emissions. Even if you're making a lot of carbon emissions, you trade off, you do other things, you plant trees, you buy carbon credits, you do something and you end up with a balance of zero. And what the point this article is making is that a lot of this kind of idea of reaching net zero also relies on the notion that we'll find technological solutions to the climate problem. So we will develop some technology, we'll develop some solution, we won't have to make any uncomfortable choices, we can just carry on uh, you know, living exactly as we did before and technology will solve climate change. And what these authors are arguing is that that's a sort of dangerous fantasy and it enables a lot of kind of saying, well, my balance is zero, so there must not be a, a climate problem anymore. One thing we can observe over the last few years is that there are a lot of companies making big net zero commitments and they're meeting all their goals. And you see, again, the green ticks and everyone's doing a brilliant job. And yet the world keeps getting hotter. So I think we need to ask ourselves why that is. And a lot of it speaks again to this idea of we're treating all this like trying to companies trying to get a better score rather than actually solving the the problem. So we've prioritized kind of reputation and appearance and what companies need to do to attract those ESG investors at the expense of solving the actual problem. Yeah, no, you talk about that in, 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 the, in the article, incentivizing ESG. What does it really take? And the takeaway is it's time for investors to stop being pressured about box ticking, something that That's you right. just mentioned, you know, ticking the box. We did this, we did that, whatever they view the boxes as. Yeah, that article is about investors all suddenly decided sometime in 2021 that what we really needed to do is incentivize ESG goals. And that will be a counter to this short termism and obsession with shareholder value. And that's all we need to do is kind of give people some ESG goals and the problem will be solved. But a lot of these goals are box ticking and they're more about sort of saying that the companies met the metric than actually trying to do something about the issue. So there are lots of examples in the article, but one example would be, you know, if you give the senior leadership team a goal to have a certain number of women or people of color in the in the senior leadership team, I mean, that's something, that's a diversity goal, but that's not the same thing as the organization having a real commitment to diversity in every part of its operations. Yeah, so right. this is more evidence, I think, for like the fewer issues you can focus on, the better, because if you're really going to focus on diversity, you need to do a bit more than just make sure there's enough women in your senior leadership team. Exactly. So, so exactly. rather than trying to do tick the box on 40 things, maybe we could try and do a good job on two things and, and we'd end up in a better place. Well, I live by the three rule. If you give me three things to do this week, I'll do one for sure. Uh, maybe two. Lucky if I get to do three. But I work with corporations where they put out 40 goals for their executives. They have to accomplish these 40 goals over the year. And I used to turn to the CEO, I go, that's impossible. People, people can't do that on top of what they're doing. So there's some sort of some sort of reality, but that's kind of pulls me into where and what are your articles, why business integrity can be a strategic response to ethical challenges. You talk about a more holistic approach to ethical and responsible business. What is that holistic approach? 
Well, what we, um, that paper is about what we're really seeing is that the legal, you know, the different functions are having to come together to discuss the problems companies are facing. If you, if you go back to the conversation we were just having right now about what companies should be doing about gun control or immigration or climate change or women's reproductive rights, it's very easy to get into a situation where the sustainability team's doing one thing and writing a report, the human resources team's doing something completely different. Meanwhile, the government relations team is spending money like the sustainability team never made those commitments. And then the risk team's filling out some spreadsheets and the compliance team's <laughs> got some policies. And the, the result is completely incoherent. So the point here really is, you know, if you've made a commitment to human rights in your sustainability report, you better not be union busting with the HR department <laughs> and you better be paying a living wage and you better not be undermining uh, the minimum wage with your lobbying. So that's what we're saying. Like, if you're going to really have a value, you can't treat everything in a siloed piecemeal way or you'll again right. end up with kind of different departments running around all thinking they've done a good job and it doesn't add up to anything apart from hypocrisy. It's not deliberate, but it comes out looking like complete hypocrisy. It's really important to tear down the silos. Yeah, I think it's just important to think, you know, what are we really saying about this and can we live by it? And so, again, the, the idea is, is not treating these value statements as sort of cheap PR. You know, everyone's got a commitment to integrity and teamwork. Well, what does that really tell you? You know, yeah, we all, we also, every corporation's like, yeah, we're, we, you know, we're really, you know, we have high integrity. Everybody says that. So it's become a sort of meaningless statement. Right. So or, getting or, beyond those empty words to something real. Is exactly. Really hey, I, I, I want to know what this really means to you and how will you live those words, what, the, what this really means to you. What the actions yeah. are. Yeah. So I think this is relatively new. You talk about it. I've talked to a few people and that is the role of the, of the chief integrity officer. That could be a very powerful position if they have power. Yeah. So we're starting to see senior leaders emerge that have ownership of more of these functions. So they don't just own sustainability or they don't just own compliance, but maybe they own compliance and sustainability and investor relations and internal audit. Or maybe there's a, a some kind of cross-functional team to think about, you know, are we, what are we going to say, you know, or are we going to say or do about this particular issue of the day? And so it doesn't need to be a single person. But somebody like Klaus Musmeier at Novartis, he's a member of the senior leadership yeah. team and he owns risk and audit and compliance and human rights. He has a team of behavioral scientists. And so he's thinking much more holistically about integrity across the organization. We work with companies small and large. Sometimes we work with companies that are just entering, they're small and they're just entering this world of sustainability and then eventually ESG reporting. What advice would you give? What are the three things, getting down to the simple, what are the th three things you would advise a company, small, but they you know, want, to, want to get into this world of, they care and they want to get into this world of sustainability? So I would, my first piece of advice, we've covered it already, but it would be prioritize. I don't try and boil the ocean. 
Don't try and solve everything, you know, have an assessment process and find one, two, maximum three priorities. The second one I would say is don't manage to the ESG report. So that's for investors. That's so investors can score you and figure out how they can make more money. It has no benefit for you. You might want to to think about reporting later on when you've got a solid strategy, but this is not why you're doing it and you're not just trying to tick the box. And then my my third piece of advice would be listen to your employees. So don't set this top down. Don't sit in a tiny boardroom and decide what the strategy is going to be. Ask employees what is important to them. Ask them to weigh in on your values, consult them, then make a decision and draw a line in the sand. I think a lot of the time what companies are doing is they're setting direction from the top, then they're facing all this noise from the bottom, and then they're jumping every time someone yells at them. And employees end up feeling really annoyed because they're not consulted and leaders end up feeling really annoyed because there are people yelling at them every day and saying they need to do more. So I think you have to have a proper assessment, review, consultation process with everyone important and you make a decision, you have your values and you really stick with them and try and demonstrate them. That would be my advice. I love it. Very (laughs) practical, very doable. So here's my coffee question. It's five years from today. Rocket and I are in New York City, and we're sitting down and having coffee with you. (laughs) A lot has changed over the five years. Where has this world of ESG evolved, uh, ESG and sustainability evolved in the next five years? I think the first thing we're going to be talking about at this imaginary coffee is, wow, that term ESG didn't last long, right? Um, (laughs) We, uh, we, that's seem really weird that we were lumping together environmental and social issues. There were always those trade-offs we had to manage because if you close a factory, you cut your carbon footprint and you also cause a lot of social damage. So okay. I think we, you know, I think the ideas are going to be just as fresh and just as salient. Companies need to uh, generate stakeholder trust. They need to make money in a much more turbulent world. They need to manage social media. They need to manage pressure from employees that want different kinds of work. They need to account for their impact on the world. All of that will be alive and well. I think corporate uh, political responsibility will be alive and well. I'm not sure that we'll still be using the term ESG. I think we'll be like, huh, that barely lasted into 2023. So that's my risky bet there. Thank you for that. (laughs) Thank you for that. So tell us about the book you're writing. It's about everything we've been talking about. It's about how companies can figure out how to do the right thing in a turbulent world where half the advice out there seems to say, just ignore all this nonsense and focus on shareholder value. And the other half of the advice seems to be, you have to solve every problem out there and be a perfectly sustainable company. And if we find anything wrong with you, we're going to uh, punish you, which feels completely overwhelming and unrealistic. So I'm trying to provide some good practical advice that is neither one of those binary frameworks, neither of which I think is going that well. Yeah. We look forward to reading it. Yes. I'm sure. And if it's okay with you, I'm sure I'm going to borrow some of your advice to share with people. 
I would be more than happy to send you a copy and walk you through the main <laughs> arguments as soon as I got it ready. Should be finished sometime this fall, I hope, and out sometime next year. Good for you. I, that's a lot of work, I'm sure. Yeah, don't let, don't talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's why yeah, I spend I'm... so much time writing all these other articles and procrastinating on social media. It's pretty painful, but uh, yeah, slow and steady and uh, uh, maybe it'll get done. Yeah, I, I was contemplating a book, but I did a podcast instead. <laughs> I think that was a smart move, sir. Yeah. <laughs> Any lessons? Oh, I think that it's very interesting because essentially, I mean, then, you know, there's so much talk in the ESG world right now about the frameworks and the consolidation of frameworks and, you know, what people, you know, I hear you sort of preaching over on the side, look inward, don't look outward to be told what you need to report on, look, you know, look inward, show them the mirror of themselves and decide what's really important, you know, and go for it. That's and, what I think. Yeah. That's what and, I think. You know, I don't think accurate and transparent data is a bad thing. Like, I think it's worth some effort. Is it worth 95% of the effort and conversation? I'm less convinced about that. Yeah. Interesting. Great. Allison. Thank you for your time. Yeah, thank you for your time. But did is there anything we didn't talk about that you would like to bring up or mention? I don't think so. I think this okay. has been a pretty wonderful conversation and we've covered a lot of ground in we half did an cover hour a lot of and it's ground. been a pleasure to talk to you both. Thank you oh, so much. I hope we do it again. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hey, thanks for listening. Just a reminder to follow Sustainable Minds wherever you get your podcasts. And please do live a review if you like what we're doing. It helps others discover the show. And of course, we want more listeners. If you want to find out more about how we can help you evolve your corporate brand, culture, and ESG, head to bakerbrand.com. See you on the next episode of Sustainable Minds, exploring the interplay of corporate brand, core beliefs, and ESG.